to Genesis, now chapter 3. We should always note when we change chapters with me, because it doesn't happen that often. So now go to Genesis 3, if you would. And let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that we have arrived at a critical juncture in your word. This chapter must be understood. If anything about this life, this world, is to make sense. Guide us, we pray, as we begin this chapter today. Amen. All through Genesis chapters 1 and 2, I have addressed at points the two major competing understandings of the world, worldviews. There is the biblical one, as presented in God's Word, and then there is the one that is contrary to the biblical one, we might describe as the evolutionary worldview, which is contradicted by any number of places in the text. And you have to decide one or the other. They change radically how you understand all of reality. And indeed, and that's true. I mean, there are some who try to wed the two together. Obviously, there are those who believe in God and also in evolution at the same time. That doesn't really work if you take the Bible seriously. If you take the Bible a whole lot less than seriously, okay, perhaps some sort of wedding might work out, but it doesn't go well. At the same time that I've done that in the first two chapters, it actually impacts our understanding here in the third chapter as well. So that's where I'm going to begin this morning, is is dealing with how that impact works and try and give you a sense of that before diving into the first seven verses, the actual temptation and fall itself, which we will get to. So let me begin this way. Shortly after creation, Genesis 1 and 2, that's the account of the creation, Adam and Eve fell into sin willfully and everything changed. To misunderstand Genesis 3, to not see it as historically accurate, and now there's just scads of people that don't see it as historically accurate, to not see it as historically accurate, to interpret it perhaps as myth or fable or allegory or parable as so many have, leaves one unable to properly understand the rest of the Bible. To understand the fall here in Genesis 3 properly is to understand who we are and what our real need is. Genesis 3 explains the condition of our universe 
today and the state of humanity today. Has explained these things throughout history since Genesis 3. It explains why the world has so many problems. It explains the human dilemma. It explains why we need a savior. Without Genesis 3, no need for a savior. And it explains what God is doing in history. The truth here in Genesis 3 is the necessary foundation for a true and accurate worldview. You misunderstand this, your worldview is incorrect. If God is God and if his word is his word. Any view of the world that lacks this foundation is utterly and hopelessly wrong, no matter how appealing or inviting it may seem. When God completed the creation of everything, everything was perfectly good. Genesis 1.31. Everything was perfectly good. No disorder, no chaos, no struggle, no pain, no deterioration, no death. The absolute opposite of the evolutionary worldview. Genesis 3 explains how we got from an unimaginable paradise to where we are today. Evolution, note, offers no explanation for the human dilemma, much less any solution to it. Why is human existence fraught with so many moral and spiritual problems? Evolution cannot answer that question. Indeed, pure naturalistic evolution, the by far popular understanding of it, cannot explain anything moral or spiritual. And yet, we are clearly moral and spiritual creatures and I submit we know we are. The concepts of good and evil which arise so prominently here in Genesis 3 are innate in the human psyche. Even the most atheistic evolutionists have consciences. We know, we know, we all know that something is wrong and evil and we know when we are honest that it is within us. We find the pull of sin irresistible. We do not do what we know we ought to do. We know that we cannot reform ourselves. 
We've tried. Evolution gives us no explanation for this and no hope of a solution. To the contrary, the doctrine of evolution, if followed consistently, ends with a denial of the reality of evil. Naturalistic evolution says there is no God and neither can there be any inviolable moral principles that govern the universe. If evolution is true, things are the way they are by sheer chance and for no transcendent reason. Nothing under such a system, such a worldview, could ever have any real moral significance. The very notions of good and evil in an evolutionary worldview are meaningless concepts. If evolution is true, what you have simply is survival of the fittest, not survival of the good, not the right, just what is. If evolution is true, there is no actual reason to condemn a Hitler or a Stalin. Nor is there a reason to applaud a good Samaritan. How is it we are wired to distinguish between good and evil if evolution is what has occurred? Those concepts make no sense. Where did human conscience come from? And why are we so drawn in ourselves, outside of Christ, to evil? Evolutionists are clueless. Scripture, on the other hand, says we were made in the image of God, but we are fallen creatures with an inclination to sin, seen even in the tiniest infants, as cute and cuddly as they may be. Children do not have to be taught to sin. They have to be taught to do good. Instead of teaching that humanity began at the bottom of the moral ladder and slowly evolved higher, even though the concept of right and wrong, good and evil doesn't make sense with evolution, the general understanding is we are evolving to something better and better, whatever that means. Instead of that view, God's word, Genesis 3, teaches us the opposite. Man began at the pinnacle of the created order and because of Adam's sin which we have all inherited lots of discussion about how that occurred and difference of opinion among Christians about how that works we'll have to talk about that later the history of humanity according to scripture contrary to the evolutionary model is the story of disgraceful moral and spiritual decline Romans 1 Humanity today is worse than ever before, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13. Our inability, unwillingness, to love, obey, and please God on our own is the very essence of human depravity. The only solution for that predicament 
is a recreative work of God, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. As Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John chapter 3, verses 7, and then back to verse 3. So with that difference of view, worldviews, let us take up Genesis chapter 3, beginning at the first verse. Now the serpent character enters the narrative that has not been present, not mentioned. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden... God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings and everything changed. All right, this serpent who appears here in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1 is identified as Satan in Revelation 12 and verse 9, in Revelation 20 and verse 2. The serpent is Satan. Satan uses the serpent um, to affect what's going on. Writers, artists, actors, and comedians routinely caricature Satan. Most people do not believe that Satan really exists. They're wrong. Satan is real and Satan is dangerous. We should never underestimate him. But God is infinitely greater and we are those who believe in Jesus, we are safe in God's hands. I heard Harold's amen from home where he is. (laughs) Except that he's sleeping right now, so that's a little difficult. Satan is an imitator, an impersonator, a deceiver. He produces counterfeit righteousness. That is, righteousness that is not real righteousness. A righteousness that is opposed to true righteousness. True righteousness which only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 9 verse 30 through 10 verse 13. Satan has false ministers. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verses 13 to 16. These false ministers preach a false gospel. 2 Corinthians 
sorry, Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 to 10. And 2 Corinthians 11, verse 26. The serpent that Satan possessed or used apparently had legs. We're not told how many, two, four, twelve. But after the fall, part of the curse was the serpent had to crawl on its belly. Satan and the angels are not mentioned in the creation account specifically, which focuses, of course, on the earth. Satan was a fallen angel, Luke 10 and verse 18. And his fall is perhaps best described in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. The serpent is described as being crafty or shrewd. This is a word that need not have a negative meaning. It's used in a number of places in Proverbs, meaning prudence or wisdom. And we recall Jesus' comment in Matthew 10 and verse 16, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, therefore be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Serpents there, not a negative, it's a, it's a positive. Satan used this creature, however, in an evil manner. The serpent was not inherently evil. Satan is. Casting doubt on God's word and subjecting it to human judgment is the very gist of temptation and part of the essence of sin. Satan's opening question proceeds in this manner, casting doubt on God's word. Has God said, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? He twists, he misrepresents God's word. Genesis 2, specifically verses 16 and 17. So it is vitally important. This is maybe the, the, the overarching application. It is vitally important that we carefully understand God's word, what it says, and what it does not say. Whole hosts of problems in the history of the church have come about because Christians have not been careful about what God's word says and what God's word does not say in context. Satan's strategy was to portray God as narrow and strict and uncharitable. And certainly as too restrictive. As if he wanted to limit human freedom and deprive Adam and Eve of enjoyment and pleasure. That was the angle he went at in challenging God and what he had said. Satan implied that evil and untruthfulness are a part of God's character. Hinting to Eve that God might be cruel and uncaring. Eve's response was inaccurate. 
she diminished what God actually had said, leaving out the fact that God had said they may eat from any tree of the garden freely. Genesis 1, 16, 17. Eating, therefore, they may do to their heart's content. Only from one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, were they not to eat And Eve made God's rule here stricter than God gave it, adding that she and Adam could not even touch the fruit of that tree, or they will die. Jewish scribes and Pharisees did this with God's law. God's law would state something very clearly, and in order not to disobey the clear statement, they added all kinds of other laws added to Scripture that kept you way away from ever disobeying that particular thing. You now had to not do all kinds of things to avoid violating that particular thing. Not even touch it. So Eve's response suggests that God is too harsh. We make the same error. A father tells his young daughter that she and her friend have been too loud, so her friend will need to go home now. The daughter runs crying to her mother and says, Daddy has declared that her friend can never come over again. Or an employer calls in an employee and he warns them that he has come late to work a couple of times and this needs to change. The employee tells the other employees that the boss is so unreasonable that if he ever comes in late to work again, he will be fired. We don't like prohibitions. We don't like warnings. We magnify their strictness. We warp them in our favor. Our response to them suggests that the superior who gave the order is unjust and the way we respond to them, exaggerating them, mitigates our culpability or blame. When we don't perform as expected, we think we then have a morally superior way out. It was just unfair. Beware, and here's the lesson, of thinking that God's word is unreasonable or that his requirements are too strict. This has happened again throughout the history of God's word. Many have thought that God's call to purity is unrealistic. Or that the biblical call to forgiving others is impractical. Beware of sitting in judgment of God. Adding to God's word, this is typical of the cults. Detracting from God's word is common among theologically liberal Christians. Beware of mishandling God's word by adding to it or taking away from it. Believe it as it is and do 
what it says. Next, Satan resorts to a bold-faced lie. You surely will not die, verse 4. He hooks Eve with a half-truth, with the notion that there is no punishment for disobedience. He goes to the direct lie, sin tempting us to think that No, there will be no consequences. God, however, is quite clear. No one gets away with disobedience. Some may appear to get away with it, but in the long run, none do. The doctrine of divine judgment is the first doctrine to be denied right here by Satan as he spoke to Eve. Satan attacked this doctrine from the very beginning. So many people today deny that any judgment is coming or that it has come in any sense. Modern culture loathes the doctrine of judgment, proving merely that this fallen world is of its father, the devil. The big lie is that we can be our own God, our own authority, live for ourselves, live for created things, and not for our creator without consequences. That's the big lie. This is the lie of pride. This is the lie of self-devotion. This is the lie of self-deception to which we are all tempted. God is a liar, Satan says. He has deceived you. He takes away your freedom. He restricts your joy. Satan tempts all mankind with that same lie today. You can be free. You can do whatever you want. It's your life. There are no divine laws. There is no absolute authority. Everything is relative. And there is no judgment. You surely will not die. Other than that last, that's basically evolutionary theory too. For God knows, verse 5, that in the day, Satan going on, you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan again goes with a half-truth. After eating the fruit, Adam and Eve will know good and evil, but Satan does not admit the honest consequence, death. Sin tempts us to think that we will be like God. We will be in charge of our lives and decide for ourselves what is right and wrong. A notion that has almost irresistible appeal. Satan casts God in an ugly light. God's threat of death, the serpent implies, is nothing more than a scare tactic to keep Adam and Eve in their place. The serpent is saying God is repressive. He is jealous that Adam and Eve might ascend too high. This is a blatant slur on God's character. 
And it's a subtle lure of divinity for Eve and her husband. Agree with Satan and their lives will be totally reinterpreted and altered. And that happened. This is also the lure of moral autonomy. You will be like God, knowing good and evil as he does. Take the fruit of that tree and you will become wise, equal with God, autonomously deciding what is right and wrong, making your own rules, doing it your own way. That deceitful promise is still intoxicating. Commentator R. Kent Hughes says a funeral director told him that among the unbelieving population, Frank Sinatra's song, My Way, is in first place as a funeral favorite. My way is actually the dirge of death making the implosion Marking, rather, the implosion of the autonomous self. Many have pointed out that various facets of sin in Genesis 3 and verse 6 are described in 1 John 2 and verse 16. The lust of the flesh. Notice she looked upon. The lust of the eyes. The boastful pride of life. We give up God for such petty things. A little fruit. Such petty things that do not deliver what they tempt us with. Adam and Eve had it all, yet they still sinned. Having it all isn't enough. So many Pursue having it all, only to find it isn't enough. Possessing the Garden of Eden, possessing the whole earth, isn't enough. Our problem today, we're never satisfied with what we have. Doesn't mean that having more is morally wrong, but are we satisfied with what we have? As Paul said, I am content with my circumstances. We have so much and are perpetually unsatisfied. Those who think that contentment and joy and peace is found in what we have need to learn from Adam and Eve. They had it all. But even that seemed insufficient to them. Many have wondered, why does the fall of man and our spiritual lostness hang on such an insignificant sin? Just eating this fruit. I mean, it's not murder. It's, it's, it's not uh, all kinds of terrible, terrible things. Just eating. Why is such an insignificant sin? Eating the fruit of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil was rooted in disobeying God and disregarding God's word and thinking that we can take God's place and be our own sovereigns. Far greater sin than just eating a piece of fruit. Some have thought that the essence of original sin 
is sexual. You hear this if you study the literature or even in common understanding in many cases that, that first sin started with sex. That's where it all went wrong. Eating forbidden fruit is seen as a polite way of hinting that the original sin was sexual intercourse. The knowledge of good and evil is seen as figurative in this thinking for the knowledge of sex. Adam and Eve were ashamed of their nakedness, it is thought, after having sexual relations. Genesis 3, verse 7. This line of thinking doesn't pay attention to the text, to what God revealed, or to how God described it. Eve sinned first then Adam. Adam may not even have been present when Eve first sinned. He may not have been. I think he was. But if the sin was sexual relations, they clearly did it together. But more than that, God sanctioned, God commanded them to have sexual relations in Genesis 1 and verse 28, be fruitful and multiply. Eating forbidden fruit, thought to be a euphemism for sexual activity, is not the way that God's word actually describes it. This view draws a figurative meaning from our way of describing what is happening. The end of verse 6, Eve took the fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Many have suggested that this implies... You ready? Eve improperly led Adam in sinning. Eve improperly directed Adam what to do. Eve improperly took charge. Elizabeth Elliot, wife of Christian martyr Jim Elliot, and a leader among Christian women for whom I have enormous respect, has called the ending of Genesis 3 and verse 6 the first Role reversal, contrary to God's design, and things have been an awful mess since. Now, with all due respect to Elizabeth Elliot, who I respect, if this constitutes, if, if Eve handing in the app, if that constitutes an improper, authoritative leading over her husband by a wife, can a wife ask or suggest or influence her husband in anything without improperly leading or authoritatively commanding him? That I submit is ridiculous, but let me be clear. There are way too many husbands who think that way. The real problem here was Adam's failure to refuse this. The real problem was his failure, I think, to stop Eve before she even ate the fruit. Any notion that Adam was forced or driven or hounded or compelled by Eve to eat and then sin reads into the text. 
1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14 reminds us that Eve was deceived, indicating that Adam sinned knowingly, which is way worse as you consider sins were. Of course, in some sense, all sin is equal, but as you consider worse, lesser and greater sins, which is also true, Adam's was way worse. Adam was not tempted. Adam was not deceived by crafty words. Eve did not pressure Adam or tempt Adam. She just gave him the fruit. Eve can certainly make suggestions. Adam seems to be held, if anything, more responsible in this. Eve was deceived. Adam sinned willfully. Blame is laid on Adam in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. Why? After all, it started with her handing him the fruit, but he is still looked upon as responsible because he was the leader. He was the head in their relationship, responsible for both of them. Eve was guilty to be sure, not minimizing her sinfulness, but she was deceived. He acted deliberately. What is all too clear in this is Adam's failure to lead Eve away from sinning. He says nothing, and he surely knew better. He went along indecisively when he should have led actively here rather than passively. And this, after all, is one of the common problems of husbands, that their leadership is passive, almost non-existent. Adam abandoned responsible headship and sinned. He took Eve's counsel, if we can call it that. That's counsel, handing him. Which is generally fine, taking Eve's counsel. But even then, Adam was primarily responsible for the decision which is why God comes asking him what's going on. The husband is always more accountable as the leader, claiming that we can blame it all on our wives when we let them decide. is not proper, it's not biblical, demonstrated by Adam trying to do just exactly that in Genesis 3 and verse 12. A husband should always consider his wife's opinion and frequently follow it. On many matters, she will be far more informed than he is. In general, husbands and wives, I believe, scripturally, should decide things together, united, in agreement. But when they cannot agree, and in a fallen world, that's going to happen then wives should submit to their husbands knowing that in all decisions, God places greater responsibility on the husbands. There are other elements here in Genesis 3, even in these opening verses, that are often not noticed, that contribute to our understanding, I think, very helpfully. Obviously, when Eve merely offered, didn't counsel, didn't charge him, didn't command him, when she merely offered the fruit, obviously... He was with her, as verse 6 says. I think that means he was right with her. So he could have, and he should have, stopped Eve even before she ate. 
But how long had he been with her? That's a serious question. Was he with her when she was tempted by the serpent? Most understand that to be no, because the serpent talked to her and not to Adam. So clearly he wasn't around. The serpent was going to talk to the one more easily deceivable. But the serpent, when speaking to Eve, repeatedly uses the plural you suggesting that Adam was with her even then. And Adam, if he was, was taking this all in without comment, without leading, without response. So as Paul said, Adam was not deceived. The woman was deceived, 1 Timothy 2.14, and her husband, husband offered no guidance, no correction when he could have. Instead, when he accepted the fruit that she merely offered, he ate along with her without any objection. He sinned with his eyes wide open. She followed the snake, he followed her, and no one followed God. What the serpent had told them was a lie. I'm sorry. What the serpent had told them was true, but only a half-truth. They did not die that day as they supposed they might. Indeed, we know Adam lived for another 930 years. And yet they did die. Even that day, their constant communion with God underwent death. They would go to earthly graves. They would need a savior. Their eyes were opened, grotesquely opened. They got the knowledge they sought, but they got it the wrong way. They saw evil, and they saw themselves now fallen. They realized they were naked and desperately sought to cover themselves. Verse 7. Their innocence evaporated. Guilt and fear gripped their hearts. Now they would have to labor to love God and to love one another. Now Adam and Eve knew evil by personal experience and their minds were open to a whole new way of thinking, a wrong way of thinking. They were susceptible to evil thoughts. They were drawn by evil desires. They no longer desired fellowship with God as they had before. They hid. They were conscious, conscious rather, of their own guilt. The serpent had promised them enlightenment, verse 5. Your eyes will be opened. What they actually received was a hideously twisted caricature of enlightenment. It was eye-opening, but in the negative sense. It opened their eyes to the meaning of guilt, but it made them want to hide their eyes in shame. And in reality, it brought them into a state of spiritual blindness from which they would never recover without a divinely wrought miracle of regeneration. The knowledge of evil was real, but it was nothing like God's knowledge. A healthy oncologist knows cancer with an expertise 
and an objectivity that surpasses the patient's experiential knowledge. But the person who is dying of cancer knows cancer in an intimate way. But it's in a way that is also destructive. Adam and Eve now had knowledge of evil that was like a terminal cancer patient's knowledge of carcinoma. It was not the kind of enlightenment that Satan had led Eve to believe she would obtain. She and Adam did not become like God, just the opposite. So how important is adherence to the word of God and trusting him in all things. Even when we don't understand, may I remind you of Job, who suffered greatly and didn't understand and complained and questioned God and God doesn't even give him answers in detail, just why are you questioning me? Trust me. Jesus, the second Adam, is the man of the word par excellence. When Jesus was tempted, unlike the first Adam, he threw himself upon God's word, defeating Satan with three deft quotations from Deuteronomy. The eternal word of God resisted temptation by turning to the written word of God. Which is why it's so important that we so constantly take in Bible. Principle of the scriptures that Jesus quoted to Satan was Deuteronomy 8 and verse 3. Man does not live by bread alone, but by everything that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus said that the word must be our food. Moses, the earthly savior, if you will, of Israel, who delivered them from slavery in Egypt, said that the word of God is our life. Jesus, the eternal savior, It's our food. The word must be our life and our food. This same Jesus, the second Adam, through massive dependence on God's word, triumphed over the tempter, living a perfect life and dying victoriously with the cry, it is finished. Jesus rested everything on God's good word and on the good God of the word. We are to do the same, unlike Adam and Eve in the fall, at all times and in all circumstances, hearing, obeying, following, keeping God's word, depending supremely on anyone or on anything else, leads only to disaster and destruction. Let's pray.
We see it clearly and we must admit, Lord, that our problem is seeking to displace you. Our disobedience, our sin seeks to displace you. This is the core of evil. Displacing you, displacing your truth, neglecting, denying, forsaking your word, your person, your holiness, your very being and character. Lord, help us to adhere to your word. Help us to love your word. As the Old Testament said it, love your law. Help us to live, thrive on, eat, take in, submit to, surrender to you and your word. That life may be well with us who have faith in Jesus. It isn't just having faith in Jesus, although that is the critical start. But Lord, it is committing to your word, your lordship. Father, help us in these things that we may be pleasing in your sight, in all that we say, in all that we do, in all that we are. We pray. Amen. If you will rise. This is where we went wrong. But the road back is clear and straightforward. Trust in Him. Believe in Him. Know Him as your Lord and Savior. And may you be blessed in that reversal of the curse of the fall. You made a part in this piece. And Eric will come back to the pulpit.